0: Hello, I'm Janis Varoufakis, I'm at Novara Media, and I have a message for you. The best way of uh, underpinning any kind of potential resistance to a very toxic establishment without being populist anti-establishment and by supporting good, rational, humanist causes is to support left-wing media like Novara Media. Novara Media and all such media need your support because they certainly do not have the support of the establishment. Capet diem. I'm sitting here just two days after the Labour Party whipped its MPs to abstain on an SNP motion calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And today, I'm going to talk to one of the Labour Party's MPs who defied the party instructions to abstain and instead voted with her conscience. Zara Sultana has been the representative of Coventry South for just about four years. And in that time, she has experienced a wave of abuse, both misogynistic and racist, that many of us would struggle to cope with. We're talking about what that's been like for her, what the response of the Labour Party has been, and whether or not it has a problem with institutional Islamophobia. So we're speaking on Friday, and on Wednesday night there was the SNP amendment to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. How did it feel emotionally for you to see so many of your colleagues
1: abiding by the whip to abstain? It's interesting because when I was in the lobby, I was surprised by how many of us there were. I didn't think that we would have over 100 MPs in from the opposition, the ASMP, the Lib Dems, including Labour Party MPs as well, vote the correct way, I believe. So I was pleasantly surprised. I was talking to other colleagues there. There were people we were quite surprised to see. They're pleasantly surprised. Obviously heavily disappointed that that motion was not carried because it's so important when war crimes are being committed in Gaza that the British Parliament takes the correct stand in the demonstration outside Parliament, which was incredible. Thousands of people had attended that evening to call on their MPs to do the right thing. And I said, this would be a vote that we will remember for the rest of our lives. And people in our constituencies aren't going to forget. It's the same as the Iraq war. It's the same as when MPs voted through austerity. People don't forget those very historic moments. So for me, it felt seismic. I could feel it in the air. While we lost that vote that evening, what is happening in Gaza hasn't stopped and the calls for a ceasefire grow louder every single day. We find ourselves where the Pope, uh, the President of France, as well as aid agencies across the world are calling for a ceasefire. So these calls will grow louder and people will have to respond to that. And even you know, if it takes a few more weeks, we want more colleagues and more MPs to realize that a ceasefire is the correct position and that's what we will continue to call for.
0: What do you make specifically of MPs who said that they support a ceasefire but wouldn't vote to support a ceasefire?
1: I found that disappointing because they know that a ceasefire is what is necessary to achieve peace in the long term but to stop the bloodshed right now. So people who made the right speeches, who have told their constituents that they believe in a ceasefire... It's really important to follow through on that and vote the right way. And I think the way that we achieve that is with the Labour Party recognizing that this is a vote of conscience and that it should be a free vote as well in the future. There are votes that members of parliament should be able to take knowing that they are following their heart and their head because it's the right thing to do without feeling pressure from the whip. Um, and in the future, there is an argument to be made uh, across the party that votes like this should be a free vote. Why do you think there was such a
0: disjuncture between what they were saying publicly about a ceasefire and their actual voting behavior when it came down to
1: it? What explains it? Pressure from the leadership of the party, so the party doesn't look like it's not unified. What I found problematic was the framing of the SNP amendment as being divisive. I don't think it was divisive. I voted for it. Many colleagues voted for it. For me, what is categorically not divisive is calling for a ceasefire so that bloodshed ends, so that international law is respected, so humanitarian aid is delivered, and for people to be able to live in peace and with dignity and respect. So To call the SNP amendment divisive is just not true and I think using that line, people see right through it as well. They see that this is a call for peace and this is people who just want the bloodshed to end and for there not to be babies in incubators who are dying because hospitals have run out of fuel and people starving um, and dying on our TV screens and on our timelines. I think that's horrifying, and the fact that it's happening in 2023 that we are seeing this is incredibly traumatic, not just for the people who are living through it, but to witness it and feel so powerless in stopping it as well. I want to go back to the beginning of your political career. When
0: you were making the decision to stand as a Labour candidate, did it feel like a natural home for you as a woman of colour and as a Muslim women specifically?
1: I came to politics through student organizing and community organizing, where I came across barriers and change that I wanted wasn't being enacted. So it felt at the time like a natural progression. If you want change to happen, to be in the corridors of power, as we call it, and push through legislation and policy and support social movements and progressive movements across the country, as well as the trade unions who do incredible work. So it's always felt like somewhere that I should belong. And there've been times where I've had voices telling me I don't belong, and in fact, the emails that I get sometimes tell me that I do not belong, not just in the job that I have, but in the country that we both live in. So to fight against those views is an everyday challenge, and it's one that I take on every single day. For me, some of the, the difficulty is when we know what the right thing is, And the forces that be whether it's through the institution of parliament stop that from happening for me the iraq war is within living memory i was nine years old i saw the marches that took place millions of people who could see that islamophobia was being instrumentalized to take us to war following the us and there were cheerleaders banging on war drums in parliament who passed many of those cheerleaders in the labor party who you're now sharing the opposition benches with? So now when I see what is happening in Gaza and I see people again banging on the war drums, I feel like nothing was really learnt from what happened from 2003 onwards uh, where people could see what was happening was wrong and mobilized and organized against it, yet politicians voted it through. Sitting in that chamber in my 30s now, just turned 30, I can see how that happened and how it can happen again, and it will keep happening. Because there is this norm within the institution uh, that has not learnt anything, that we should not be supporting wars, that we should not be supporting bloodshed, that maybe we should look at our own complicity. And I've tried in my short time in parliament to raise awareness of that, British arms, that have rained down on Yemen from Saudi Arabia, British arms in Gaza that have been bought by the Israeli army that are now showering down bombs in Gaza. We are complicit, if not through our international legitimacy of what's happening through institutions like the UN, but everyday arm deals that are being signed off by this government. So people see that, people are very aware. I, 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 guess, I guess the question I'm asking more of is about
0: how did you feel as someone who grew up like me during the war on terror seeing the mistakes that the labor party made at that time how did you feel entering into that institution were you confident that you could
1: make things different absolutely i i believe that the labor party had recognized the mistakes that it made with iraq recognized that strategies like the prevent strategy which disproportionately affect muslim people were wrong But in my short time in parliament, I've had to make those arguments sometimes against my own colleagues on issues to do with when British forces withdrew from Iraq, making the points about the prevent strategy, when I talk about refugees and racism. Sometimes I'm not just arguing against people on the opposite benches. Sometimes I know I'm talking to my own colleagues who don't Um, share the same views and that's fine. That's the sign of a healthy party where there's differing views. The issue that I find is when differing views uh, find themselves met with harsh consequences, that's not a sign of a healthy party. You should be able to differ, not just with your colleagues, but the leadership of your party without worrying that there will be these huge consequences just for differing and having a different opinion. How does it feel talking to me now? Are you worried about some of those consequences? I'm not worried about consequences because what I'm saying is what I believe to be right. And I know that I'm not the only one. When I speak to colleagues um, across the party where they feel like they can't express themselves, I think that's a worrying sign. Are you concerned that by putting your head
0: above the parapet, you might end up being disciplined in some way,
1: even up to the point of having the whip removed? Well, there were briefings that came out of Lotto, the leader of the opposition's office, to say that I was going to be deselected. And when my reselection happened within my constituency Labour Party, uh, I was reselected with over 90% from across all my wards and from affiliates. So there isn't a worry that my local party members disagree with me or aren't happy with the work that I do. But there is this narrative that has been coming out of uh, certain places to make it look like views that I have or people like me uh, shouldn't be in the Labour Party. And to speak up against that has been difficult, but it's really important because I go to schools and I come across young girls in the streets, on the tube, on the train, uh, in parliament, and they'll ask me how is it like to be a young Muslim woman in parliament because they want to enter politics. And I want to tell them, it's great. You'll be able to make a difference because you can. You can make a difference every single day by supporting the most vulnerable people. But there is a reality that if you are a Muslim woman and if you are a woman of color, and if you are left wing, then things are very difficult. And it's not just um, the abuse you get, which is horrific. And you know, I can read some out to you, it's not very nice, but it's also the difficulties within spaces that you shouldn't be feeling those difficulties Um, and I think that's one of the things that I struggle against. When there were briefings coming out um, from Lotto and I got quite upset in parliament about it, that was the first time that the leader of my party set up a one-to-one meeting with me. That was the only time I've ever spoken to him directly one-to-one and that was because I was heavily upset and other colleagues could see the impact that the negative briefings in the press were having on me and others and I just don't think that you need to be in such a bad state for there to be conversations with you and the leader of your party.
0: What has it been like in terms of racism during your time as an MP? What is the kind of response that you get from certain sections of the public? I'm not saying it's representative of everyone.
1: In my constituency, I knock on doors and the response is very good and and very warm and welcoming and people are incredibly kind. That's not reflective of what I get in my inbox or some of the letters that I get through the post and what I see on social media. In fact, I've stopped even looking at the replies to posts that I post on Twitter. What is being said? Incredibly racist, hurtful stuff. Um, The general stuff telling me that I should go back to my own country, um, which is quite hard because I was literally born here. So, you know, don't know. Well, I know exactly where they want me to go. They specify, they say, go back to Pakistan. Um, Someone once told me Ghana and I was like, great, I would love to go to Ghana. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then specifically, um, just really vile, vile phrases about being a Muslim. Um, you know, I mean, right. Okay. There's just there's just some that like I I've even received uh, more recently. Um, I mean I'm not gonna read them word for word, but but I mean I think keep your fucking mouth shut, you p-word Muslim bitch. If you know what's good for you, um, go live in your own country, you dirty smelly Muslim bastard. You lot have ruined our once great country. Um, you and your Muslim mob are a real danger to humanity, which is what I referenced in parliament. Um, another letter saying, I'm a cancer, and soon Europe will vomit you out. Terrorist sympathizer, scum of the earth. And if you can't stand the racism, perhaps you'll be happier going back to your country of origin, foreigner. Um, and then just a final one. Um, our cities are full of Muslims, send them to Pakistan. So that sort of stuff. And if you just look on Twitter or X as it's now called, it's just hundreds and hundreds of, of similar uh, kinds of messages. And you've got to kind of see it as an occupational hazard to some degree, but I don't think that makes it acceptable. Um, and I think if we're to be honest that it is completely disproportionate, um, and it is, uh, targeted towards um, you know the likes of Diane, who gets the most abuse of any MP because she's a black woman on the left, um, and we see that you know with obsana being the first visible Muslim woman, the abuse that she gets, but also the way that there isn't anything in place to support MPs uh, practically speaking within the party. Uh, so these kinds of kinds of things carry on, and especially in the context of what is going on now, um, MPs. Uh, who are speaking up uh, for Palestinian people to say that they shouldn't be killed um, indiscriminately by Israeli bombs, uh, that these are war crimes, are getting it in their inboxes and and through social media as well.
0: When you were reading out those messages, your voice was shaking and you were visibly upset. What is it like in your body when you're reading that kind of abuse? What is the physical sensation of what goes on for you?
1: It's incredibly distressing. Um, There's a pain um, that is completely attached to that because you are hearing these horrible thoughts that someone not only thinks, but is able to send to you, knowing that you are going to read it and feel quite bad. And they are okay with you feeling that way, which, is incredibly heartbreaking because I do this job to make a positive difference. I got involved in politics, in mainstream politics, because I want to have an NHS that's fully funded, where people are able to get the support that they need, that people are able to live in housing that doesn't have mould or infestation where we're able to go to university and not worry about the debt that we get, that people are able to get the mental health support that they need. All of these things that we all benefit from, Benefit from, but because of the color of my skin, um, or the religion that I choose to follow, that somehow is beyond the pale for some people, which is a difficult thing to process because it is a constant reminder that no matter how hard you work, or how good the politics that you have and what you want to do, you will never really be accepted by some elements of society, which is not reflective of the public as a whole, of course. But that realisation and actually processing that is heartbreaking because this is home.
0: Sorry to interrupt this interview with Zara, but This is just to say we can only be responsive to the news cycle, talking to people who are at the center of the storm because of the support of people like you. So if you're already a monthly donor, thank you. And if you'd like to become one, go to novaramedia.com support. We're asking for the equivalent of one hour of your wage per month, but anything you can afford is deeply appreciated. Thank you. Something which I talk about with my partner a lot, is that the politics that we have need you to be optimistic about human nature. Absolutely. And then you read this stuff and you find that that optimism is under this kind of strain. Is that a part of it for you? You're trying to hold on to your view of people in the face of just this horrible onslaught of like the ugliest aspects of human behavior. And
1: I think our brains will always look at the ugliest part of human behavior and those horrible things and threats some of it's just nasty messaging. Some of it is an active threat, and you worry that when you're out and about in the pub in, in, in the public sphere and, and in public spaces, should you be worried? And I am, of course I am. Um, and because we view that as a threat to us, we, we place a lot of significance on it. But at the same time, the messages that I get from people across the country, um, whether it's through Instagram, whether it's through my emails, whether it's just in the street, And people are just so full of love and warmth. And that is just what fills my cup all the time and allows me to pour. Because if I just gave in to that horrible feeling and through to to that racism and that vileness that some people would love for me to kind of succumb to, then they win and they can't win. I can't let them win and it's everyone else who is the majority. I believe it because I've seen it and I feel it. That sense of community is what gets me through, what allows me to carry on because I know that when I speak up, I am being told by these people that I'm also speaking up for them. And I feel like that's a privilege and I'm incredibly lucky. And even though I feel down and there will be days that I feel more down than others, I am actually making A bit of a difference in my own way and when i go to demonstrations and i go to picket lines and i go to the food bank and i go to community centers there are more of us and more people who who see the world the way that we do than the racists that don't see us within their kind of idea of inclusiveness or what Britain is and I think there's fewer of them and we just have to kind of organize against that politics and build a better world because if you don't then you kind of give in Um and I, and I don't want to do that.
0: I mean we've been discussing this very dedicated hardcore group of racists who are very very vocal online. Has that ever bled through into real life? Have there been times where you felt genuinely concerned for your physical safety
1: there has been one occasion when i've knocked on a door and i was just going to ask someone if they needed any help and the person looked beyond me and looked at volunteers who were also knocking who were white and said to them i am a patriot so i'm i'm the one knocking on the door they're looking past me um uh, towards the 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 white the white men um, and essentially saying you guys understand me, there are all of these issues that this person had. And and it kind of went into really racist, anti-Semitic tropes about society. And I had to walk away. I wanted to talk to this person and and actually address some of the concerning things that they were saying. But at that point, it didn't feel safe to. And I was told that it's better if I move on by friends and colleagues who actually uh, were worried at that point. But that's the only time where it's happened um, when I've been door knocking. Um, i'm worried when i'm on public transport in case i'm recognized and someone who uh, might feel like my politics are not theirs and how they will react so there is that constant worry um, and unfortunately it's just become the norm in the way that you live your life it's not something that you think too much about because it's just the way things are which is quite uh a weird way to live but you that's just what you kind of become normalized to doing. But for me, I think beyond what I've received and beyond the kind of comments and the language, it's what we see in society. It's what we see on the front pages of our media, which have emboldened so many people to go out and attack people in the streets or send abuse their way. And we see it mainstreamed, it's in the press, it's been used, the language being used by politicians. When you've had the former Home Secretary refer to migrants as a hurricane, and you've got the language of an invasion being used by the very very top of, of of our kind of political system. When you've had a former prime minister who called women who wear niqab letterboxes and used racist language about black people, getting away with it, didn't have to make an apology, never had to make an apology, and that was just accepted. That sends a message to everyone else that, hey, it's fair game. You can say what you like. And that's what I feel, even in Parliament, that people can get away with saying things, especially about Muslims and Muslim communities, that is completely horrific and people should call out, yet they don't. Have you witnessed or experienced
0: racism or Islamophobia from Labour Party members?
1: I personally have not experienced Islamophobia from Labour Party members, but I know many people who have, many people who have left the party because of the way that they were treated. Um, and the fact that the Ford report itself had people who had been members of the Labour Party for a very long time talking about discrimination, talking about sexism, talking about racism, yet regional and national staff never Really took that seriously. Uh, the Ford report that said that there is a hierarchy of racism within the party, where uh, racism like Islamophobia isn't treated as seriously as it should. And then Ford, Martin Ford himself, not being contacted or reached out, reached to by the party ever since the publishing of that report. I think that speaks absolute volumes. Not just be, not just to members who were treated badly, but also MPs who saw themselves being talked about in the most disgusting way, and yet nothing seriously has been done about those issues. I think that's a really horrifying way to deal with something as serious as as racism. Um, And I think it means that there's so much more that we have to do, because if this is a party that is going to go into government, and if you can't address racism within your structures, then that speaks volumes.
0: You mentioned that You met with Keir Starmer one-on-one after you'd raised in Parliament the impact this abuse had had on you. What was that conversation like?
1: So I was contacted by Keir's office after I got quite upset in the voting lobbies, after there were negative briefings that were coming out um, about me and colleagues, and there were um, real concerns for our safety. And I was quite frustrated because I can understand, although I completely disagree when there is targeted briefing coming out from Tory MPs or that side of of politics. For me, what I struggle with is when there are briefings coming out from your side, your party, how do you deal with that? That's a very difficult thing to kind of accept is going to be the case. So, so what found, were in these briefings? So the briefings that were coming out from a Labour source were calling me and others, women of colour, mouthpieces for the kremlin and what that implies is that we are not loyal to britain playing on those tropes of being a fifth column which many muslims know how that feels when you are being told that you're not loyal and you can't be trusted and and that your loyalties lie in other places and then in response to that i received hate mail um, that included references to what was going on at this time including being called putin's whore and again feeling quite upset at all of this i wanted to be able to talk this through which is a natural thing so a meeting was called um, and this was because my colleagues had seen me quite upset and that's what initiated this so i was contacted Um, it was a meeting where i had to humanize myself and talk about the abuse and talk about how this isn't um, a way that I want to be working uh, within parliament and and kind of have this. um, I I didn't want briefings to continue. That was the main objective. And I also wanted to talk about how um, the rest of us were feeling about what was happening. So it was along those lines. Did you feel understood by Keir Starmer? I'd like to say that that meeting uh, was productive. I was able to outline my concerns. And for me, it was really important to also highlight the concerns of Muslim communities, young people and progressives who are a really important coalition for the Labour Party to get into government. So my... That's not an answer to the question of did you feel he empathised with you? He listened during that meeting. Um, He responded to the points that I was making about asking if I had appropriate security measures in place, which I didn't feel was really addressing my concerns, which were about briefings that were coming out of Lotto specifically or from Labour sources. And I feel, like that problem in particular has still not been addressed more widely when we think about um, Labour Muslim members leaving the party and being referred to as uh, fleas by Labour sources, um, where there are uh, members of Labour's NEC referring to Muslim councillors resigning um, and being told good riddance, and others being, being described as barely Labour. Um, so I think there is a wider issue about what is coming out of those spaces. And while I wouldn't assign blame to Keir, uh, there is a group of people around him um, that are behaving in ways that I personally would describe as unacceptable with what they uh, say to the press um, and others what they will publicly say on social media about other people within the party. So if I can sort of paraphrase this and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong.
0: Keir Starmer listened. He was responsive in terms of threats to your physical safety and wanted to make sure that security measures were in place. But the issue that you were raising, which was about there being a campaign of negative briefing against Labour MPs who are women of colour, yes, didn't get engaged with and that's still an ongoing
1: problem it's still an ongoing problem.
0: How does that make you feel, particularly when you're dealing with the onslaught of racist abuse from very online hardcore racists? How does it make you feel when you're not being taken seriously on this
1: matter of negative briefings coming from
0: inside labor? you
1: just don't know where else to go or what else to do. In an ordinary workplace, you go through the processes and the procedures to raise issues, and then you look at the deliverables. And in this scenario, there is nowhere else to go once you've spoken to the highest figure in the party about it. And I think what makes it worse is when you hear from other colleagues and other Labour Party members who feel like the party does not treat concerns around racism seriously, um, you have to wonder what is the issue here and why we can't get this right. And that's incredibly frustrating.
0: In preparation for this interview, I've re-familiarized myself with the all-party parliamentary group definition of Islamophobia, the examples that it gives, which was adopted by the Labour Party. And what struck me is that two of the examples uh, said specifically that making mendacious, dehumanizing, demonizing, or stereotypical allegations about Muslims such as, or of Muslims as a collective group such as, but not exclusively conspiracies about Muslim entryism in politics, government, or other societal institutions, the myth of Muslim identity having a unique propensity for terrorism, and claims of a demographic threat posed by Muslims or a Muslim takeover. Another example, accusing Muslims as a group of being responsible for real or imagined wrongdoing committed by a single Muslim person or group of Muslim individuals. So that's a definition of Islamophobia adopted by the Labour Party, which says you can't generalize. About Muslims, you can't further these tropes about Muslims being an entryist force in politics, and you can't hold Muslims collectively responsible for the actions of an individual or a group. And I just wanted to ask you what you think about these two briefings that I read in the press. One was a briefing just after the Batley and Spend by election, which said, Basically, we built a new electoral coalition in six weeks, lost the conservative Muslim vote over gay rights in Palestine and won back a lot of 2019 Tory voters. This result shows we're reconnecting with the wider electorate again. And another briefing, which was in the Daily Mail, um, an anonymous party strategist was quoted by the Mail on Sunday newspaper claiming that Labour was hemorrhaging Muslim voters because of what Keir has been doing on anti-Semitism. In your view, do either of those two briefings contradict the APPG definition of Islamophobia as adopted by the Labour Party?
1: I think they do. And particularly the Batley and Spen briefing was just horrible. And to say that Muslims are homophobic um, and they do not they are not necessary for the Labour Party's electoral coalition is a slap in the face to Muslim communities who have historically voted for the Labour Party at every single election to just say, you're disposable and actually we don't need you. It's just so offensive and should have been condemned by everyone. Um, And things like that shouldn't have been briefed out in the first place. Since then, the briefings along those lines haven't stopped um, but also some of the campaigning tools that the policies adopted i personally was quite offended at a poster that was on our twitter feed the labor party's twitter feed which had rishi sunak's face but said he doesn't think that adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go into prison And again, when that was widely widely criticized as playing on racist tropes of Asian men um, around sexual assault and paedophilia and should be taken down. In fact, there was a doubling down on that and that tweet was never taken down. And I looked at that and thought, people here know exactly what they're doing and they know exactly what kind of racist tropes they're playing on. And I looked at that and thought, Are you talking about my family members? Do you realize how this would be seen within South Asian communities as a whole? Do you care? And I find myself coming back to that question of, do you care quite a bit? Most recently, where whips told MPs, hey, you might lose 7,000 Muslim voters. That's okay. You'll still win your seat. So whips said that to MPs,
0: Verbatim, you might lose seven thousand Muslim voters, but that's fine. Yes. Do you think that any other minority group could be talked be in that way, talked about
1: in that way? No. And rightly so, no minority community should be talked about in that way. Um, and I think the fact that it still continues about Muslim voters and Muslim communities is because the Labour Party has a problem and. I would go as far as calling it institutionally Islamophobic because this isn't just my individual experiences and this just isn't individual experiences of of Labour Party members. It crosses through with the briefings that come out, the kind of language that is used, the policies that we're willing to say are fine and normal and acceptable. And it's much more wider than than individual experiences and I think that's why we have to look at how we can address this if we're really serious about being a party of equality about looking at how we treat all people fairly and I think we're seriously lacking in that area. When you say institutionally Islamophobic what do you
0: mean? Do you mean that in, that Islamophobia is widespread? Do you mean that the processes
1: that exists to deal with accusations of Islamophobia aren't fit for purpose. I think people in power within the party do not care about Islamophobia and do not care about the concerns of Muslim communities and Muslim voters. They're willing to just kind of ignore them. Um, and I think they think that Muslims will just continue to vote for the Labour Party because what other option is there? And that's really worrying because to get into government, which is what I want, You have to have a broad coalition that includes black and ethnic minority communities, young people, progressives, people from all backgrounds, but especially Muslim communities who have historically voted for the Labour Party. And I get the the feeling that there are people who are looking at our election campaigns who think, actually, we don't care about this part of of our electoral coalition anymore. I want to
0: go back to that briefing that was in the mail on Sunday, which Said that, well, we're hemorrhaging Muslim votes because of Keir Starmer taking action on anti Semitism. There's a perception that there's a zero sum game between being active on tackling Islamophobia or active on tackling anti-Semitism. Do you view it in that way? I
1: think that's a disgusting framing. To tackle all forms of racism has to be our MO within the Labour Party. This isn't pitting one community against each other. It is in all of our interest to tackle anti-Semitism at its root. We are all safer for it and we are all better for it. And to have Islamophobia being fair game is also not in anyone's interest because that makes all of us unsafe in the same way that solidarity has to be the action here. We have to be fighting for all of us. We can't just undermine or dismiss any form of racism, whether it's anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. And if a colleague said to me that they thought anti-Semitism wasn't being treated seriously within the Labour Party, I would see that as a rallying call for action as well. And therefore, I'd like to see more people speak up about the fact that Islamophobia just seems to be something that isn't treated seriously. And given the fact that it is Islamophobia Awareness Month, it's always an opportunity for the party to reflect on what has happened and is happening within the party and and society more widely where two in five hate crimes, according to Home Office data, are targeted towards Muslims, the most targeted faith group. And you've got data from Talmama that says there's been a 600% rise in Islamophobic hate crime since early October. This isn't just a minor problem. This is widespread. And until we get our own house in order, how can we address something that is a major issue within society. To the best of your knowledge, has
0: adopting the APPG definition of Islamophobia made a practical difference in addressing Islamophobia within
1: the party? There have been trainings that the party has delivered for staff. Beyond that, I have not seen anything substantially, which makes me feel like it's just a tick-box exercise. And I also feel like some of the engagement that takes place with Muslim MPs is done on a tokenistic basis where it's just like, yes, we've listened to you moving. Let's move on now. Like we've done that. We've ticked it off. We're not going to actually address the issues that have been mentioned by colleagues. We're just going to say, well, we've talked to them. We can brief that out. Let's move on with our lives.
0: There'll be some people watching this who go, well... Of course, she's upset. She's on the left wing of the party. They've been largely marginalised under Keir Starmer. This isn't actually a pressing issue for the
1: Labour Party. How would you respond to that? I've got colleagues who are not on the left of the party who feel like they are not being listened to or that they don't belong within the party or within parliament because of their job, because they're Muslim. And because they are raising the concerns of people in their constituency and they are not on the left of the party to frame this as just a left right factional thing is really offensive because this isn't about factional games this is about how we can actually be a broad church that we can actually treat everyone with respect and dignity and that This issue isn't something that I'm talking about in years to come because it's horrible. I'd like to go into work and be able to speak up for my constituents and to speak up about issues that affect us all without worrying that I'm going to be labelled a particular way because of my faith or because of the colour of my skin. That's the society that we should all be working for. And at the moment, that's not the world that we live in. So as I mentioned earlier, we're having this
0: conversation during a time of immense loss of life. In Gaza, a month after the Hamas attacks on Israel, there's been skyrocketing reports of both anti Semitism and Islamophobia. Has the Labour Party given any specific
1: support to Muslim and Jewish MPs during this time? We'll get texts that are sent to the whole PLP that say, be careful, uh, messages that are around security. But in terms of pastoral, there isn't anything. It's very much you just kind of get on with it and find support in other spaces. And for some people, that'll be their friends and their family. And for other people, I don't know what they'll find themselves doing. Maybe talk to other colleagues, but there isn't anything that's coming in a more structural, pastoral way. Do you think
0: that Israeli lives and Palestinian lives are viewed as though they have equal worth by... British politicians?
1: Absolutely not. If Palestinian lives were seen as worthy, as equal, we would not have a death toll of over 10,000, where half of those are children. That would not have happened. And I find myself in Parliament asking how many more people have to die before we call for a ceasefire, before we use whatever tools we have, whether it's the United Nations, whether it's our own diplomacy, whether it's our arms deals, there are ways that we can actually make a difference. So what will it take? And I never get a response to that. And I personally think it is because of racism, where Palestinian lives are not seen as equal. um, And that is why we're seeing what we're seeing. Keir was very happy to condemn
0: Russia's attacks on civilian infrastructure in Ukraine as a war crime. He was reluctant to do so when it came to talking about Israel's attacks on civilian infrastructure in Gaza. He said that politicians shouldn't be weighing in on matters of international law. Why is there a difference between how these two things are being treated?
1: There is quite a significant difference in the way that People in the media, in politics, have looked at what's happening in Ukraine and legal invasion by Russia and what they see in Gaza. And I think it feels quite hypocritical to call out war crimes in one instance and then look at what's happening in the Middle East and shy away from calling out violations of international law. And it's not me that is an expert on international law that's calling them war crimes. These are scholars of international law lawyers who have called out the Labour Party for not highlighting these violations. And I think people in our communities also recognize that and find that quite frustrating. And I think those double standards play out in so many ways when the UK correctly had safe and legal routes for Ukrainians to come to the UK and people open their homes and supported them. We don't see that same approach to other people fleeing war and persecution. And when we look at the reasons why that might be, I think people will struggle to find a reason that doesn't include the color of people's skins and which part of the world that they come from.
0: Do you think that if the Palestinians were white or if Palestinians weren't majority Muslim, that the Westminster
1: consensus on this issue would be different? I think Muslims and people from the global south have been dehumanized so much that it is challenging for people in power to make a human centered argument to save their lives. And I think that is rooted in the way that we see some lives as more worthy than others. Do you think that UK politics has a problem with anti-Palestinian racism? Yes. When we look at the solidarity that has been shown to Palestinians, where 76% of the British public are calling for a ceasefire, and we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people on a weekly basis take to the streets to show solidarity, to call for a ceasefire. And then these marches are being described as hate marches, because it's In solidarity with Palestinian people, I think that reflects on the way Palestinians are seen by the political elite, the way that they're seen by the media who also want to whip up these divisions that don't really exist within society. I think that does speak to racism, absolutely. If you could
0: write Keir Starmer's policy on dealing with racism in UK society and dealing with racism in the Labour Party, what would you get
1: him to do differently? I would get the Labour Party to implement the recommendations of the Ford report as a starting point and to speak to Martin Ford because he's done a lot of the fact-finding, he's spoken to a lot of people, yet we've just completely dismissed that. And then I think we have to start looking at our manifesto for government And look at some of the policies that we've got in there. What are we saying about the prevent strategy? What are we saying about so many issues? Because Muslims don't just care about foreign policy, which is what some people try to portray the community as. When Muslims live disproportionately in the lowest and poorest, lowest income, poorest communities in the country, issues around housing, issues around school funding, issues around investment in our NHS matter massively yet we're not seeing we're, we're not seen through any lens other than national security or perhaps foreign policy and i think that is also very racist in that framing so i think looking at our manifesto and looking at what we will do in government are we actually engaging proactively with communities not just the muslim community with all communities or are we just leaving this to a few lobbyists or a few members of staff in Lotto, are we actually being proactive? Is there much democracy in these processes? And I think that's an essential tool in that, as well as looking at education um, within our party structures, within our CLPs to address all of these things. If we really do believe in that APPG definition, are we making sure that everyone in the party is abiding by it? And are we treating complaints seriously? And I don't think when it comes to the complaints front that they are being treated seriously. Do you feel that the party has
0: understanding for you and your experiences as a Muslim
1: woman? I don't think it does. Other than getting people to understand abuse is bad, there are many other layers to it. I have personally tried to get a bigger office for over two years now, because my office in Parliament's is incredibly small. So when I want to pray in it, it's incredibly hard. And that was quite pertinent, especially during Ramadan. I haven't had any response or reply to that request. When So it's too small for you to have a prayer mat and to do Salah. I can make it work, but I'm basically up against a table and it's just it's just very small i'm sure we can arrange for you to come and visit and check it out it's tiny it's like a matchbox um and all i'm looking for is just a space big enough to have members of staff to also be there and to be able to pray which i don't think is a crazy request especially when there's a lack of prayer space in westminster Overall, as well as some of the other kind of challenging aspects in terms of food, which hasn't been fully fixed yet, in terms of there not being enough halal, halal and hot food, yeah, no. Um, and and when we did have a trial, um, it hasn't been really looked at properly. There was a trial, um, and then nothing much since. And I think that is um, an ongoing battle, in particular during Ramadan. Um, I. Wanted to make sure I was present at a constituency event and any MP can send a request for a particular issue. It could be there's a by election in your patch and you want to be slipped for some votes or you need to leave parliament early for whatever reason. It could be a medical appointment, which is a personal reason. So you can send a slip request for a variety of issues. In particularly just before the local elections, there was a huge constituency event at the local cathedral, which is a very famous cathedral in Coventry, um, a multi-faith iftar was taking place. So I just wanted to be slipped for that. And I ran into issues with just that being approved, which I thought was strange. Would
0: Uh, that be the kind of request that would ordinarily be granted? There's a constituency event. It's a multi-faith celebration And it's important that I be there.
1: Absolutely. And it's got relevance because it's just before a local election. And actually, you're speaking to your constituency and you're speaking to the electorate. So many aspects, it's a completely reasonable and normal request. And it wasn't instantly approved. And then I found myself kind of fighting to be able to attend this in my constituency. And And it was an iftar. It was an iftar. It was... There were volunteers from across the city and people from across the city of Coventry that were going to attend. So just a really wholesome, lovely thing during Ramadan. And there's so many iftars that take place that people go to of faiths and no faiths. And this was going to be a really important one for me to, to attend. Ran into these challenges and then found myself being Muslim-splained, I would describe, where the kind of... Dean-splained. Dean-splained Muslims splained iftar splained <laughs> where I was being told how an iftar kind of works and how it would run and all of these things by, and who? by my whip so what actually happened with this like dean splaining so my slip I was not getting a response t- to it so I got a phone call from my whip and I was being told that I didn't need to leave early it was fine and I had to basically break down that no I had to be there at the start of the iftar because When Maghrib prayer gets called in, that's when people eat because they haven't eaten for the whole day. So they start eating at that point. So the whip wasn't familiar with the concept of like breaking Breaking your fast. And actually the fact that you can't really try to speak to people at an iftar while they're eating because they're too busy on, on focused on eating. So I'm having to explain what an iftar is and I'm being told, well, no, you can just go much later in the day and I and I said, people will be going home at that point. I really can't go at that time. It would be completely pointless. So I'm having to just explain prayer, um, the fast um, and appropriate time for me to be there. And it was just bizarre and- Labor whips on the phone being like, can you delay the call to prayer tonight? Yeah. Like just, just yeah. any way yeah, you yeah. could do it. Just do it 10,
0: 12. Yeah, like you're all day. There's only a couple more hours. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, there's the kind of comedy to it, but it says something quite grim, which is that there's a ignorance, perhaps, about Muslim faith, Muslim culture, Muslim practices that
1: you'd be embarrassed to display if it was about other backgrounds. And I think if it was isolated, I think it would be a different conversation. But when you look at it with everything else, the fact that I'm trying to get a slightly bigger room just to be able to pray. I'm not getting any response to that. When we're talking about the concerns coming from Muslim voters and Muslim Labour Party members and they're completely dismissed. When we're looking at the Labour Party's role historically when it's implemented special measures on constituency Labour parties that have high numbers of Muslim members. These are not things that are just kind of random and have just happened. I think it speaks to that institutional aspect that I was talking about where it's happening on so many levels and in so many different ways that unless we really grapple with it I feel like it will just continue and when in government if that is how things are then that's concerning.
0: And, and, and did the leadership know about this whole brouhaha over the iftar?
1: Yeah I flagged it because I thought it was completely unacceptable to be patronized and spoken to in that way where someone was trying to educate me on my own religion and and practices. Final question. We've talked
0: about the Ford Report a few times, and one of the things in the report is that there is a widespread perception amongst Labour's members of colour that the party operates a hierarchy of racism. Do you share that perception that the party operates a hierarchy of racism?
1: I do, and I feel like Islamophobia and anti-Black racism is not taken seriously at all. And I think I'm not the only one who would agree with that within the PLP as well. I think that's a widespread feeling. Sarah Sultana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.